Thank you, Nisi. I know that took a lot of uh, a lot of courage to to, um, stand up and share that. But to God be the glory in our weakness. He is strong. And uh, just one suggestion, Warren, you might want to get another room, one for the trouble and then one uh, maybe a good news room. This is this is the room where good things happen. So they don't get too confused. No, I'm teasing. That was awesome. Uh, what a special service this has been already. And um, there really is a uh, the spirit of Christmas or a spirit in the air during the Christmas season. Not everybody knows what that spirit is, but we know what that spirit is. And we just appreciate um, all the children that participated in this play this morning. And parents, thanks for getting them dressed and getting them here for rehearsals and practice. Thank you, Elijah. I think Elijah produced that or directed that uh, play. So this was really uh, a kid's a kid's gift to us this Christmas service. So thank you so much for that. Well, we saw a lot of things that Christmas isn't. Um, a lot of things that we saw up here aren't bad in and of themselves, cleaning and baking and buying gifts. So I, don't, I don't know about that bottle of cheer, how far to take that. But, um, but that's not Christmas. And Noah was getting frustrated because he wanted to know what Christmas really is. And we were left with a vision of what Christmas really is. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, just read a passage out of Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. That's the story of Christmas that we will zero in on this morning. It is found in other Gospels. But when we think about Christmas and what really is Christmas or what is the heart of Christmas or what are people or what should people mean when they use the word Christmas, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let me read Holy Scripture. As we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together as she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So what we find here and what I want to speak about this morning is Perhaps what might be considered the very heart of Christmas. If you're looking for Christmas and you want to define it, what is the heart of Christmas? Well, we sing many songs, many Christmas carols during the season. One song we often sing, though we didn't sing it this morning, 
is, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And it is a reminder of the meaning of Christmas. Now, we are we saw in verse 23 and 24 that the angel that it was prophesied that Jesus's name or the Messiah to come, the person sent by God's name would be called Emmanuel. But in the same story, we see that Joseph was told by the angel to call him Jesus. So we see two names in the same passage. It's not a contradiction, but Jesus actually had many names or titles or characteristics or attributes. So he was called a wonderful counselor. He was called son of God. He was called son of David. He was called the king. So these are titles and characteristics. But his given name was Jesus. So what does Emmanuel mean? Well, rarely, if ever, in Scripture do you see a name given with a definition beside it in parentheses. And so when that happens, that's pretty important. And what Matthew does to make sure we're really clear what's happening here when we picture or when they actually saw in that day, little baby Jesus lying in the manger. He defines the name that he shall be called. And he wants to make it clear that what is happening with the Christmas story is that Jesus is God with us. Literally, Jesus is God with us. That's what it means. And we call it the incarnation, a bigger word, a fancier word. Um, taken from the word carnal. Now, we read the New Testament, especially Paul's teachings about don't be a carnal Christian. And the word Greek word is simply for flesh. It's the word for flesh. And there's nothing wrong with our physical flesh. But he's referring to the indulgences of the flesh. When we walk by the, the sinful urges of the flesh as opposed to walking by God's spirit, we might be considered a carnal Christian. But what Jesus did is he took on carnality. He took on literally the flesh of Humanity, So he became a carnal God, if you will, by taking on the flesh. And that is the heart of the Christmas story. That's what took place. That's the big news. The big news is that Christ, the Savior, is born. And the bigger news is that the Savior that is born is God himself come to the earth. The Savior. Now, Israel had saviors before. God has sent many saviors to his people. And so when they read this verse and Matthew is quoting Isaiah 7:14, when they read this verse about God sending another savior or um, this this sign, this child that will be born and he will be God with us, they most of them would think, sure, God's going to save us another savior and he'll be with us like that, just like he was with us. And we sensed his presence when he sent Moses and Joshua and and Samson and David and all the other deliverers and saviors that he sent. We can really sense the presence of God as we see him bringing his kingdom on earth. Matthew is saying it's that, but it's not just that you will sense and feel and literally be in the presence of God himself. So that's what we will explore this morning in this meaning of the incarnation. And I just want to unpack the definition that Matthew gives us in Holy Scripture. God with us. What does he mean by that? Well, first, the God part of the incarnation. 
The doctrine of the incarnation simply says and identifies what scripture says, and that is that Jesus is literally God in human form. He is 100% God and 100% man. So God wrapped in flesh, human flesh. He didn't give up his divinity. He didn't give up his divinity. He remained or maintained his deity while taking on human flesh. Now, what he did lay aside, at least in part, is his glory. So he is still walking the earth as God. But he did lay aside his glory, as we're reminded in Philippians 2, 7. Talking about Christ, the Apostle Paul says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. What did he empty himself of? Well, for the most part, his glory. And the reason we know that is because if you think of the Old Testament story, when when Moses asked to see God's glory, what had to happen? God said, well, we, you can't really do that in full form and fullness. You have to shield yourself. You need a veil. You need to, to get in a shadow because that's how bright and, and vibrant God's glory is. Man, the human eye just can't even take it and live. And even though Moses was veiled, he, his, his face still turned into a spotlight because he was reflecting the glory of God. But Jesus emptied himself. And so when Jesus came to earth, we, the, the disciples didn't have to wear high-powered welding helmets to shield themselves from the glory because he came as an ordinary man. He laid that aside with few exceptions, the Mount uh, Transfiguration. Well, then they got this little glimpse of the glory of God. But for the most part, he emptied. He was so ordinary. He came in ordinary form, so ordinary that he was almost just part of the landscape, unrecognizable. He had no stately form or majesty. There was nothing about him that would make him stand out. He wasn't buff or handsome. If he took his shirt off, he wouldn't go viral. That kind of... That kind of ordinariness, that kind of humanity, he came in the form of a servant. That's what he wrapped himself in. So I think you see the point there. It was a marked difference. Jesus is God. So Matthew tells us Jesus is God. He's God with us. That's what's literally taking place, guys. That's what he says. And then John joins him in his gospel in chapter 1 when he says, In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God. <clears throat> How the, this is rather remarkable that those that are saying Jesus is God, because these are primarily Jewish people that are saying Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. And this isn't an easy thing to do because they are really the least likely people at that day and age to wrap their minds around this fact that the deity just took on humanity. Because they were all about God is spirit. God is one. God is too holy to, to be mixed up in this dirt and this flesh. Now, the other worldviews in that day and age, they probably wouldn't have any trouble believing that, yeah, the deity took on flesh. Because, you know, the Greeks and their mythology, 
the Greek gods were always coming down to earth and messing with humans. And then the result, like Zeus, for instance, Zeus comes down and messes with a mortal woman. And the uh, result is Hercules, a demigod. So they, they understood this idea of mixing and matching. And then, of course, the Eastern religions believe that everything was God. He's it's pantheism. God is everywhere. So that wouldn't really trouble them, this story. But this this could eliminate some of the um, the Jews out of the picture. They had to really wrestle with this. And so for for Matthew and for John, and we'll read a few from the Apostle Paul to actually say, yes, this is real. This is God. Is a big deal. Colossians 2, 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Not just a demigod, not just a mistake or a one night tryst. It was Jesus is fully divine, fully God. And then again in John chapter 8, So the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went into the temple. There is Jesus taking on God's name, God's title. Who is the I am? They would know exactly what he was saying. And that's why they wanted to eliminate him. They wanted to throw stones at him because they did not see him as God. Timothy Keller says, Jesus Christ, by his life, by his claims, and by his resurrection, convinced his closest followers he was not just a prophet to come to tell you how to find God, but he was God come to find us. Every other religion differs from Christianity here. Every other religion was founded by someone who was a prophet or a sage or a teacher who came to tell you how to find God. But Christianity says, no, our founder, Jesus Christ, is God come find you. That's the Christmas story. That God has come to this earth to find you lost humanity. God gave Jesus as a gift to this world. And as we wrap and unwrap our gifts this season, we want to keep in mind the true Christmas spirit, the true Christmas story, that those are representations of the gracious, generous gift that God gave us in the form of Christ. Because in giving us that gift, he has given the world everything it needs. He's given the world the king it needs, the healing it needs, the, the wisdom it needs, the love it needs, the hope that it needs and the grace that it does not deserve. And this brings us to our second word in the definition. That's God. And what about with God with? So Jesus isn't just God and he didn't just come to look in on earth, to check in on earth as deity and say, yeah, OK, and go back up. Just what I thought. He came to involve himself. He came to be with us. With is a relationship term. So Christmas is about relationship. I've used this definite this example before, but when um, Gracie visited us, when Abby was watching Gracie one day, I heard her say, I want, will you play with me? 
I want somebody to play with me. What is that? It's a plea. You know, life is pretty good by yourself, but it's even better. You just need somebody else involved. And Jesus is saying that I want to be involved. God, through Christ, is saying, I want to do life with you. We heard in the candle testimony this morning from Anissa when she was in that orphanage. And what were the words that came out of her mouth? What did she realize even in that hard time, she said, God was with me. There was this relationship. Something was happening there that she was able to look back and say, he was right there. There was a, a witness there. It's this witness that it takes to make true disciples. I like how Mark puts it in chapter 3, 13 through 15. When he went up on the mountain, he called to him, talking about Jesus, those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he had named the apostles so that they may be with him, that he might send them out to preach. The discipleship was about witness. Come on, guys, follow me, be with me, do life with me. And that's what they did. They followed him. They ate with him, they drank with him, they learned with him, they laughed with him, they cried with him, they stood in awe with him, they were involved in each other's life, they suffered with him, they did things together. A lot of times today we say one of the signs of a false conversion is somebody who says, oh yes, I believe in Christ, he's my savior, and then they just walk their own path. There's a separation and you don't see any signs of witness. And discipleship, a true conversion is, is when you say, yes, I believe in Christ as my savior. And then you, you, you walk with him and you do life with him and you say, here's my heart. You just open up to him. Here's my heart. Look at all the things. Look at all the reasons I needed you to save me. Look at all the things in there that need your grace applied to my heart. Will you walk with me through this? And Jesus is God with us. And he's willing to do that. And next Sunday, actually, this is part one of a part two. I want to talk more about the incarnation. And next Sunday, we'll look at what it means to be vulnerable and what it means to open our hearts up and why we should do that and walk with God in that way. But that's a true faith. Thank you for finding me. Thank you for coming to me. Thank you for being willing to look at the ugliness in my heart and still want to hold my hand through this life and be with me. Jesus became human to be with humans. Is Jesus with you? Is Jesus with you? Are you with Jesus? This is what the wrapped gift means. Don't do Christmas. Don't celebrate break. Christmas without the witness, without Christ being in the gift buying and wrapping and unwrapping, without Christ being with you in the baking and as you serve and as you want to bless others and as you gather as family, as you sweep and prepare, as in your own way you celebrate the Christmas cheer and the Christmas spirit. Don't do it without the witness of Christ, because that is the true Christmas story. 
And then the us part of the incarnation. So God and with and us. What does the us part represent? What did Matthew mean when he said God with us? Who is the us? Well, practically speaking, it is you, you, the, the us in that day and age when Matthew wrote those words or spoke those words represented all of humanity. And just for sake of ease, I'll break it into three different categories that as you think about the life of Christ and read the Gospels, you you can see three basic responses to this idea of the incarnation God with us. And each category, basically, because of God coming to visit the earth, put humanity in somewhat of a crossroads. It puts humanity in in motion and having to make decisions. And you know what a crossroad is. That's when you have to make a decision that depending on which way you go, it's going to affect you the rest of your life. You're going to it's going to be with you the rest of your life. The incarnation brings into humanity a crossroads where we have to make a decision what we're going to do with Christ. And the decision that we make, the direction that we take will be with us the rest of our lives. So here are the three basic responses that we find in Scripture to the claim of Christ's deity. First, the response of, of anger or absolute rejection. We've already got a glimpse that most of the Jews, though some embraced him, most of the Jews were upset and they were angry and they wanted to kill him because they did not believe that he was God. And um, John chapter 8 Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you before Abraham, I was, I already read this. I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Other passages said they took him. They were trying to get him to the edge of the cliff, push him to the edge of the cliff so they could just push him over and get rid of him. They were always wanting to throw rocks at him and lay hands on him because he claimed to be God. And they were as convinced that he wasn't as he was convinced that he was. And I read that about God's people wanting to murder the the Son of God. And I think to myself, how is that even possible? You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what do they do? Well, they have literally devoted and committed their whole lives to living for God. Studying God. They know the Scriptures perhaps better than anybody else. They write them, they copy them, they memorize them, they teach them to others. And I think to myself, how can you devote your whole life to studying God and yet studying God's word or God in the word? And yet God, the picture of God, God in the flesh, the person of God stands right before your eyes and you don't know him. You don't see him and you are absolutely convinced that he isn't God. How is it even possible that we can devote our whole lives to the study of something and then completely not even know it? What a sobering question. And the answer, of course, is pride. They, 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 they are claiming they know their father. They're, they're saying, I know my father. It's Abraham. It's not you. You're not my father. And you know what Jesus winds up saying? You're right. Your father's Satan. How did that happen? Somewhere along the line, pride got in as they studied, as they devoted. And they thought, well, I got it all figured out. I got it all wrapped up and I know God and you're not him because what is pride is a sin. And what does sin do us blind us? If you have ever doubted the power of sin, it is so powerful that you can literally devote your life to the study of this book that 
that has the power to bring you to God. And sin is so powerful that you can be reading it and be absolutely blind to it. That is the power of sin. That's why we need God with us to save us from these prideful spots in our hearts that are literally blinding us to the blessings and the goodness of God. They thought they knew God because they could keep all the rules. But no, they did not know their true father. So they came to this crossroads and their response was to grow angry and to want to kill him. We see similar things today. Just to just mention the name God or especially Jesus. And there can be some uh, gnashing of teeth. Some people get angry because they don't believe Jesus was God or they might believe in a God or some kind of God. But they don't like the idea that people claim there's only one God. And that's the God that deserves to be worshipped. So they get angry and they reject this idea altogether. Perhaps they don't believe in God at all. They get angry. They don't want to hear it. What do we have to tolerate every Christmas season is those that are totally against and reject anything that remotely reminds them of God or Jesus. We don't want nativities. We don't want crosses. We don't want Christmas carols. We don't want to hear. We don't want to have to wrestle with the idea of God or Jesus or the incarnation. It's a total rejection and people get pretty angry about it. We see it today. Angry about the God who doesn't even exist in their minds. The second response that we see in Scripture is fear and avoidance. Part of the Christmas story isn't so fluffy and frilly about away in the manger with the sweet little cute baby. Some of the Christmas story is the story about King Herod. Some of the Christmas story, part of Jesus's childhood involves King Herod who knows and believes that this is a true king that's being born in Bethlehem. And so what he does is send his soldiers to kill all the, the uh, any two years old and younger. The male babies born in that area just to make sure he's got it all covered. To make sure that there is no competition in his kingdom because he likes being king. And so one category of humanity rejects Christ as king. They, they acknowledge it. Yes, he's the king. He's the rightful king, but I like being king. I like being in charge. And so I'm going to reject you or I'm going to avoid you. We like calling the shots. And so that's part of the part of the us and the humanity. That's part of who God is with. We don't want the competition. We like being in charge. We like calling the shots. We like having what we want when we want it. And this idea of Jesus being God in the flesh and king threatens Our kingship. Because he's saying I have rightful ownership and rulership over all things, including your life, including your heart. And we don't want to hear that, so we avoid it. The rightful Lord. And rather than filling our hearts and souls with the bread from heaven or the water that we can drink and never thirst again, we try to have our fill with earthly things. And reject it. There's only one true king and one true kingdom. And he's worthy to rule and reign. He's worthy to be in us and with us and to work through us. What's the saying that we hear every season? Wise men still seek him. What about the third group of people? What 
did they do with Jesus? Well, the third group I'll just call the, the willing adoration. As they let the reality and the truth of the incarnation seep in. They're the people who end up on the ground. They're people who end up bowing in worship because they not only acknowledge, they don't avoid, avoid they acknowledge and they embrace in their attitude. They adore him. They're willing to throw everything down. They're willing to leave their livelihoods, leave whatever it is that they are involved in at that time. Leave the throne of their hearts and turn it over to Christ and make the incarnate Christ the center of their being. There is that passage in um, that talks about the feeding of the five thousand in John. And Jesus was working his miracles and people were being fed. And that was a good thing. Who doesn't like free food? But after that, detecting that what their hearts were really seeking was just the free food and not Jesus. He began to put out there some hard sayings. That caused them to face the condition of their heart and they didn't like that. And so most of Jesus lost most of his followers because they were following him for the wrong reason. And so after most of them left, he turns to the twelve and he says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He rightly understood Christmas, the incarnation, takes us all to this crossroads. What are we going to do with this idea of God with us, this truth, this reality that has permeated and entered into our little world and our little kingdoms. And we're reminded of this season. Which way will we go? Which part of the us humanity? What category do we fall in this Christmas season? Well, we are in a season of celebrating great hope. And that is that God didn't just send a preacher or send a prophet or tell us how to get to God. But he came himself and he wrapped himself in human flesh. And he says, I am the way he comes to save us, not just to make our lives better, not more tolerable. He came to save us from the wrath of God. And that means grace and grace is hope. And that's what we carry with us. So. Will we walk with God this Christmas? Will we open all of our heart to him and let him in and show it to him and let him apply his grace and his mercy to it and be filled on the bread from heaven? Resolve as we feast and open gifts. To also feast in our hearts on the gift of Christ, the gift of grace through the incarnate God. Merry Christmas, New Covenant Fellowship. And I pray that we will all walk with the God who is with us this season. May God bless the preaching of his word.